Welcome to the Improver Network Podcast. The Improver Network mission is to make the world better by helping faith-driven leaders, entrepreneurs, and small business owners improve personally and professionally. Finding balance and maintaining focus in a world of distractions and discouragement can be challenging and frustrating, but we're here to help you discover your purpose, become more productive, and reach your true potential. Now here's your host, Justin Winstead. Hello, Improvers, and welcome to the Improver Podcast. I'm Justin Winstead, your host, and I am here with a oldie but goodie friend. Got Cooper Day in the house. We go back several years. Cooper, it's been a while, but good to see you, man. How are you? I'm doing well, sir. Thank you. Yeah, man, you drove in a little bit here. Uh, It's hot out here in Texas right now. It's traffic crazy and weather crazy, or was it a good, cool drive-in, or what's going on? Uh, It was a great drive-in. I've been blessed to um, get a a recent upgrade on my vehicle and uh, been told by my children that the AC works a little too well. (laughs) All right. Well, well, hey, we need it around here, man. These uh, 100-plus temperature days are something else. Well, man, excited to have you on the show today. There's a lot of our uh, people who are mutual friends and acquaintances. They'll probably find it interesting that we've connected uh, because we all used to be pretty close, and then life takes us different ways. We move different directions, and in loose touch a little bit, but in the world of the interwebs and social media, at least we've been able to stay somewhat in touch. But I was trying to think about how many years ago it was when we uh, connected uh, there in Colleyville through Family Ties, that little group. Oh, my gosh. I think that yeah. was the name of it. So, yeah. uh, But do you remember how many years ago that was? That was in 2013, was it? Okay. Well, it was at least that long ago whenever we came out there. And so, yeah, probably. So, yeah, we're at least 10 years in. Yeah. We at least made the decade club in the friendship. So that's fun, man. Yeah. It's good to have you here. And so let's just kind of jump right in and just learn a little bit about you. And then we'll go into some of the topic that we're going to talk about, which I'll go ahead and tease the audience a little bit. It's going to be different from some of our normal uh, topics in the sense that uh, we've talked about the voices before, and I live in the future voice world. I always am looking forward and anticipating what's to come. And well, today we're going to look backward a little bit. We're going to look at some history stuff. And so that's a little teaser. But before we get into that, man, Cooper, just tell me some of your story, man. How did you how did you get here today and what you're doing? And tell me as much or as little as you want to about your your family and just your current status. But just let us know who you are. Yeah. So thanks for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity to come out here. Um, so I guess long story short, um, as you mentioned, uh, you know, we were at uh, Colleyville for a number of years, about 16 years. Um, I met my wife at the University of Texas at Austin in a very obscure uh, 18th century British literature class. Man, I think we just lost all of our A&M fans. Y'all don't, don't go, don't go. Like, it gets better. Don't hold it against him. He's still good. Uh, there, there has to be an outlier, right? <laughs> Just like Malcolm Gladwell says. Yeah. Um, but uh, we we met and uh, you know hit it off really well. Uh, she was unlike any other girl um, that I had ever been around and been with, which was good because that was God basically telling me that what I had been chasing after wasn't good for me. So He brought me something that was good for me. Uh, and continues to remain, you know, excellent for me. Um, we just celebrated uh, 16 years of of, um, of marriage, and uh, we like to say that, like fine wine, we get better with age. So that that's our goal uh, in our in our uh, our marriage, our, our personal and professional uh, lives as well. Um, we have three wonderful children. Uh, Brianna is about eight and a half. Elizabeth just turned six, and Michael, aka Bam Bam from the Flintstones. <laughs> Because he his hobby is you know making noise and breaking things. Oh um, man! But uh, got a wild child, little Tasmanian devil at home. Uh. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes, yes. It uh, he's got a very healthy set of lungs, and uh, we try to keep uh, our house as sparse <laughs> as we can because <laughs> something's going to usually uh, end up going sideways. We got a new time. puppy at our house, so I'm kind of relating to you a little bit right now. I decided it'd be a good idea Father's Day weekend to go get myself a golden retriever puppy. Nice. And so, yeah, we've kind of got this little terror running around, biting stuff and chewing stuff and jumping on stuff. And I'm like, wait, we had relative calm before you came along. Um, I'm, in fact, whenever I did this, the first thing when my wife, when I was telling her about this deal, she said, uh, what, what are you thinking? And, and I realized there was a lot of wisdom into that question because I'm like, what was I thinking? I'm really yeah. not sure. It's just the puppy was cute and 
I don't know. Uh, I usually don't make rash decisions, but I was left alone for too long on Father's Day weekend or something. But, yeah, so I'm relating to the uh, chaos that can yep. come with a little one that hasn't been polished yet. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We've, we've got uh, two young dogs as well, uh, one that's about three, and the other one is a little over a year. So, yeah, can definitely relate to uh, to the puppies. They're, they're both uh well, one's a full-blooded German Shepherd. The other one is a, a German Husky mix. But uh, high energy, uh, but, you know, I didn't grow up with dogs, but I'm definitely a, a dogs person, and I can't imagine life without them. They're, yeah. they're fantastic. Um, but uh, we live uh, we lived here in the DFW area for, for many years. Um, and then when COVID hit and the work-from-home situation arose, um, really had the opportunity to kind of take a step back, see what we wanted to do long term. And Amanda was, you know, raised out in uh, what used to be the country area, uh, far southwest of Austin. Now it's, you know, exploded and no longer, you know, the same. Um, but we had the opportunity to purchase a, a couple of acres uh, and, and build a new home out in Poolville, which is about 20 minutes um, northwest of downtown Weatherford. So it is, you know, from your office, it, it was about an hour and a half. Oh, man. Yeah. You did a good drive in to be with us today. Well, appreciate that. Yeah, everybody always likes to talk about uh, being from small towns, uh, a.k.a. the country. And the way a lot of them will describe it is, you know, we only have one stoplight in our town. I hear them say that. And I'm like, you know what? My town, we only had a caution light that I grew up in. It was a little town called Baskin, Louisiana. We nice. just had a caution light. Caution so, light. Okay. Yeah. We, yeah. We've got a couple of stoplights. Yeah. We're... <laughs> We're, we're, we're not that small. But, Do you have uh, a McDonald's? I mean, that's the... No. Oh, so we, you are small. We didn't have a McDonald's either, so... Yeah. No McDonald's. They're putting in a Valero and a Sonic, which is causing uh, the local neighborhood Facebook page to be all a flutter. <laughs> so, yeah. All this construction. We're I know. overcrowded with the Sonic. The, 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 the city people. <laughs> About the worst thing you can uh, be in, in the minds of, of certain people uh, folks out in, in Parker County is to be a, a city person. City person, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Never mind that you know we've lived in Texas for you know close to forty years. So, but yeah. anyway. And then professionally, man, what about? Um, I mean, what pays the bills and what fuels the passion? Yeah. Um, so I have been blessed to uh, work for a very large financial ser- services uh, conglomerate, uh, Fidelity Investments. Mm-hmm. Um, been with them for 19 years almost, have worked in a, a variety of positions throughout the firm, um, have obtained um, you know, most of my, my FINRA uh, licenses, um, and have just really been blessed uh, to be part of uh, the family office group over the past couple of years. Basically, the, the Fidelity Family Offices provides products and services to uh, uber-wealthy folks. Um, I can't tell you who some of our clients are, but you would know them yeah. <laughs> if you just, you know, go to uh, to certain uh, magazines or, or websites. You'll you'll see them. Um, but anyway, um, it's been a fantastic group of people. Uh, I really like you know the the benefit offerings that, that the firm has. You know, all all my children have been born in Fidelity Paid Healthcare, which has been fantastic. Their retirement benefits are wonderful. Uh, it's been a great place, um, and uh, definitely recommend it um, for for anyone you know looking for a uh, a role in financial services wherever they are in their career. I mean, Fidelity yeah. is, is still growing; they're still they're constantly changing, evolving. Uh, the privately held, which is I, I believe to be uh, a big strength, and uh, have really you know learned a lot and gained a lot over the yeah. years. I need to see if I can get a paid spot from them on this. This is a good little ring for them here. So, uh, <laughs> like, hey, man, we're promoting you on the podcast here. How about a little ad revenue? Now, that's fun, man. Well, you know what? As you're kind of telling some of your story, some of our people are listening in. You know, we're about eight minutes in now, and they're going, well, what, what is this thing about anyway? Like, why, are, why do we have this guy on here? We don't know Cooper, and, like, okay, he just seems like a, a, a normal guy. He's got a family. He's got his dog. He's got a house. got a job. Like, why are we having a discussion today? That may be on the minds of some of our listeners, and sure. I'll tell you why. Here's the reason why I wanted to talk with Cooper today is a couple of reasons. One, he is one of the most well-read people that I personally know. Um, a few years ago, I set a book-reading goal, and I know what it does to your mind and to your heart and then just to your life to um, to consume good content, new content, to gain different perspectives. You know, we often say here at the Improver Group, 
uh, that if you want to change, if you really want to improve, you change the community that you're around and you change the content you absorb. So he's absorbed a lot of content and I'm kind of like, well, I haven't read all those books. So maybe there's something in some of those that, that, uh, that I could benefit from. And so that's one reason is just all of the knowledge there. And then Second, maybe along the same lines, but a little bit more specifically is, is as I alluded to earlier, I'm a future-oriented voice. And so the way I interpret things, I'm usually looking at vision. I'm looking at hope. I'm looking at how do we make things better next time. And even so much that people say the word feedback internally, I say the word feed forward because feedback is backwards looking, historical, blame shifting. I'm like, it doesn't matter on that. I just want to know what's next. How do we change it? What information is relevant for the next go round? That was stolen from a book by Kirsten Ad called Permission to Screw Up, by the way. But I just love going forward. And then it's cool because Cooper's like, hey, I want to talk some about history. I'm like, you know what? I kind of stink in that area in some ways. Some things I know about, but a lot of things I don't. So I'll expose some ignorance on this podcast today. And so anyway, that's why I wanted Cooper to be on here to talk to us is he's well-read, got some information I think will be helpful to us. And I think he's going to help us bring history to the present and that'll help us in the future. How do you like that little line? Yeah, I appreciate that. I think uh, maybe I can just uh, walk away and uh, yeah. we'll be good here. There you go. So so tell me, you, you want to discuss something historical. Where do you want to start here and what do you think would be helpful? And keeping in mind that most of our listeners are going to be family-friendly, faith-driven people yep. who are trying to win at home and at the office. They're trying to grow personally and professionally. So we'll keep that you know, context as we go along. But but tell us something historical and then why you feel like it's relevant and we should know. Okay. Um, so as I mentioned before, uh, when, you know, we were, uh, before we started recording, uh, I've been kicking around this, uh, this concept in my mind called history as data. Um, you know, collecting data um, has been kind of a, a a, a passion of mine recently. It's, it's, I don't know if it's because, you know, my, uh, my electrical engineer grandfather is finally making his genetic memory, um, known in my life, but it seems like as I get older and, you know, just deal with kids more that my brain has kind of rewired itself in a more analytical way. Um, you know, I'd struggled with, with, uh, with math a lot growing up and, um, you know, just not very um, analytically uh, oriented, but I've, I feel like over the past couple of years, I have become more. And, um, you know, as you see from the, the books I post on Facebook, I tend to do um, what's called thematic reading, where I basically take a, a given theme and I will read books on the theme up to, you know, a set point. Uh, could be an entire year, could be six months, uh, could be two years. What's an example of a theme that you would have picked? Uh, so I, I did a almost a two-year-long theme called Trip Around the World, where basically I just looked from a variety of perspectives, either be it geographical, cultural, um, architectural, whatever it is, and then just kind of traced a path around the world in, in different areas. It could be the history of a country. It could be a piece of architecture. It could be culinary uh, it could talk about um, food or military engagements or, or whatever. But the whole purpose was just to seek to inform, to grow my knowledge, and to just spark, you know, ideas um, that other people may find interesting um, as well. So so you did that, and a lot of that was just to learn and be exposed and yeah. just, uh, yeah. yeah. It's kind of like you take you did take a virtual trip, right? It's like you didn't get to go, which kind of felt like you got a little of the experience. Absolutely. Of it's called dress. I just like that idea. So, give me one more theme on that. Like, what would be another example of a theme? Yeah. So the 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 theme right now I'm doing is called future shock. Where future shock. Future shock. Yes. Okay. So basically, um, I've been taking a lot of you know futuristic books. Uh, I've got a book on my list by a known futurist uh, by the name of Ray Kurzweil called "The Singularity uh, Is Near." Um, I read a book recently called The New Geography of Jobs by Enrico Moretti um, that was really interesting where he talks about these um, centers of influence in terms of urban areas where you have these um, ideas and spillover effects of people sharing knowledge and just be, being better constantly at their particular craft um, and the 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 main mainstay of it is 
the density and proximity matters, which is a big reason why I chose to drive out here today because mm -hmm. the interaction that you and I have here in studio is going to be, in my mind, of better quality yeah. than, than it is, you know, you if, know if, if, if I'm, you know, 45 40 miles away. You know, and, and even besides that, like I've, I've been having an issue here lately and there's actually been a conflict and I'm very conflict averse. We usually prevent it rather than have to deal with it. I've been in a conflict lately and the person on the other end of it only wants to communicate by text and email and I've refused to do it. And that's actually caused the conflict to not really be resolved because I'm like, I, re I refuse to continue to engage for that exact reason. Yep. Like, I feel like you, we need to hear tone. You got to, you know, feel the body language. And yep. so, yeah, man, that's the deal. So I love that futuristic kind of way on. So the benefit of picking a theme and then reading several books on that in your mind is that you're able to focus on that topic more yes. and able to really let it build versus, you know, you pick pick this one here and you change topics, maybe the mm -hmm. the information doesn't compound probably. Right. Is that part of the idea? Yeah, I mean, that, that's a great word for it. It's just the the the, the, compound, the compound multiplier or whatever you mm -hmm. want to, you know, pick in, in, in terms of, of, of how things just tend, tend to, to aggregate together. Um, you know, I mentioned before in that book, one of the things that I, I gathered from that really was the spillover effect, which is kind of the unintended, you know, positive consequence of something taking place from the fact that you have all of these connections and knowledge just constantly being exchanged and compounded and, and generated. And it's basically almost like this self-sustaining ecosystem. Yeah. Um, but um, yeah, so really neat. I want to add one thing on yeah. that too. And that's, I had a friend of mine many years ago, and he said he used to read like pretty much everything three times, and that was really wow. It's like no, I'm, what? Not, I'm not that right. And so I was like, man, <laughs> why would you do that? Because if I'm going to read three books, I'd rather read three different books, right. right? And his explanation to me, and this, and he had moved here from Africa and was a businessman here, and so part of it was English. It sometimes took him a little bit longer, sure. so that was part of it. But okay. the other thing is, he said, I read it the first time for exposure. Okay. I read it the second time for understanding, and I read it the third time for real application. And he said it usually takes me that first time just to get exposed to the new idea, the second time to really begin to break it down and make sense of it, and then the third time I actually feel like I can do something with it. I feel like you're getting that uh, benefit, even though you're not reading the same book three times, because you're doing themes, you may get exposed to an idea, and then there's some overlap or spillover there where now you're getting more understanding, yep. then you read another book, and like yep. you're applying it but you're doing it from different angles and you're probably even getting more of the core of the topic rather than just one perspective on the topic. So that's one thing I love about that thematic, you know, plan on that. So right now you're, so you're doing the thematic, you're yep. talking about that. And so, uh, but, but how are you tying this in with the data piece on it? So I love the idea of thematic reading and, yes. and doing that. So how is that relating to your data idea? So right now um, I'm reading a book called uh, the, um, what is it? It's called the, Hold on. Get your notes pulled yeah, up. Yeah, let me get my exact <laughs> title here. I mean, honestly, I'm glad I'm not the only one that has these little memory lapses here. Okay. We're getting yeah. older, man. Yeah, we are. <laughs> All right. So the age, the, the the main title is The Age of Surveillance Capitalism. The subtitle is, of course, everything now comes with a subtitle. It's like literally yeah. impossible to find a book with just a, a pure title nowadays. So it's The Age of Surveillance Capitalism, The Fight for a Human Future at the New Frontier of Power. Uh, written by a Harvard professor by the name of Shoshana Zuboff. Um, and it is part philosophical treatise and also part uh, historical, um, you know, contemporary uh, issues. But basically, um, she defines surveillance capitalism basically as what Google does all day, every day in terms of generating, um, you know, data, so cookies on websites, microphones on smart devices, geolocation history, et cetera. Um, and basically companies such as supermarket chains and car insurance providers are now beginning to see themselves as data aggregators uh, rather than just their, in, in addition to their traditional lines of business because of the amazing lucrative profits that result mm -hmm. from being able to get all this data and then e either predict, you know, what the customer is going to do next or to find new, use that to find new customers or to deep, deepen relationships with existing customers, mm -hmm. increase your profits, and hopefully the cycle continues, et cetera, et cetera. But as uh, Professor Zuboff also, you know, de details extensively, there's some tremendous downsides mm -hmm. to that. And she cites an example where 
um, one of the head of Google's projects was talking about, well, nowadays, it's a lot easier if someone just falls behind on their car payments to go ahead and just have the car shut off and then direct where the repo man needs to come and get the car. And she deal, details an example recently. Um, well, I don't know how long. It, it was fairly recently, but because it, it went viral, um, where it was in Washington State, suburban Washington, a couple fell, elderly couple fell behind on their car payments, and the repo man came to get it. And then he realized, okay, these are hardworking, honest people. They're retirees. They've fallen on hard times. And he basically called the the lender and said, we need to work something out here. So her, her premise is you're removing the human element from it. And mm-hmm. what ended up happening is they started a crowdfunding campaign. And within 24 hours, they had enough to pay off the car, get them a Thanksgiving turkey, uh, get mm-hmm. them some extra money, all that stuff. So the technology in that in in that instance was able to be used from good from the perspective of the crowdfunding campaign. But her point was that if we can just if we remove the human element, empathy, compassion mm-hmm. from this, and we're just going to do strictly a hard nosed dollars and cents, you're mm-hmm. you falling behind case closed type of thing, then we lose a lot of what makes us, you know, work in a society. Yeah, that's what all the sci-fi movies show about future uh, futuristic robots and all. It's all mathematical calculations. Yep. And, you know, they say, oh, well, you know, the baby gets to die because it has a 3% chance less of survival anyway, so I'm going after the adult. Whereas we would say, no, I mean, go help the baby. And, right. like, you know, it— it's, it is a different thing on that. So It is. All right, so, so, you, so this deal, you got this surveillance capitalism, so you're kind of talking about that, yep. and then so and then everything can't be data-based, all right? <laughs> data-based, right. Uh, I wasn't trying to go that well, uh, route with it, but uh, it can't be based on data. All right, but again, I'm trying to figure out, so, but history as data. Yes. So you're saying that, like, what, what? how is this tied in with the history piece here? Right, so... Again, it's an idea that I'm still fleshing out, but mm-hmm. th- there's a couple of examples that that uh, you know uh, that that can be used if, if someone wants to use mm-hmm. history to help them with something practical. So let's say you're an aspiring entrepreneur, you're seeking encouragement. You can look at the story of Toussaint L'Ouverture. Now, a lot of people don't know about Toussaint L'Ouverture, but he basically was the guy who started the sla- the first successful slave revolt in the Americas. They drew inspiration from our rebellion in 1776 and 1791, they rose up in rebellion against French rule in the island of Saint-Domingue, which is modern-day Haiti. And he basically, he was born a slave, he lived as a slave, he became self-educated, taught himself, it got exposed to the ideas of the French Enlightenment, and he basically created out of, one would say, close to nothing, a freestanding, disciplined army that was able to take on one of the most powerful empires. It was Napoleon's France. Napoleon sent his brother-in-law to go and put down the rebellion, and he failed. So Napoleon had to end up turning tail and running from that. But basically, out of, again, very miserable, abject circumstances, this man was able to succeed. Now, the the moral of the story on that is the person who is wanting to start something probably isn't coming from that far behind the eight ball like Toussaint was. But the message is if Toussaint can do it, this person probably can too. Mm. Yeah, man, and I've never thought about the fact that our revolution here was the inspiration for – yeah, other revolutions, but specifically a slave (laughs) revolt uh, revolution. So even the – the seeds of us fighting for our own freedom planted the seeds for other people to fight for theirs. And yep. yeah, that's a, that's a neat deal, man. So, all right. Well, so cool. another, I got, I got a couple more. Yeah. Um, so another example, if you're a parent um, of a teenager, mm-hmm. that that's always fun. Um, who's hanging out with the wrong crowd or spending too much time uh, in a relationship of a questionable caliber, then you can look at what happened to the French in Algeria uh, or the Dutch in Indonesia. In both examples, you have these colonial powers who are quite no, I wouldn't say they're they're literally, but they're 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 increasingly taking measures that are hypocritical to their values and what they stand for. 
And the bottom line is it's not a mutually beneficial arrangement. And eventually they end up having to to leave and of extracting a tremendous cost to themselves and to the other societies in the process. So the bottom line is if both parties are not on the same page and if it's not a mutually beneficial relationship, it isn't going to work. And that needs to be ended sooner rather than later. You know, a lot of times in business, we always, and actually I'm going to give a little point, but I got to tell you, when you said parents of teenagers, it took me back a few years because I used to be in ministry and I worked with uh, youth and we had a group that was parents of teenagers. And for short, we called it the pot group. And so it was the parents of teenagers with a pot uh, pot group on it. And so anyway, that was just a silly thing the kids always made fun of. But hey, so you were saying uh, that about the mutually beneficial win-win relationships is what we're always saying. And we say we go into business with people and win-win. And they're like, well, why not? Obviously, it would be selfish if you did win-lose where you win and they lose. But why aren't you willing to do the you lose and they win? I'm like, it's not sustainable. Right. Like all long-term relationships are mutually beneficial to some right. extent. So you give and take, but you lean give. You know, so anyway, that's a good principle uh, in that. So, yeah, cool. And I tell you what, I know you got one more uh, on there, or at least one more. We're going to hear some more on, but let's pause for just a quick uh, break on this. And then on the other side of the break, we'll pick it up. This episode is brought to you by the Improver Network. Members of the Improver Network get exclusive access to bonus episodes of our podcast. Additional member benefits include educational content, encouraging community, and practical coaching to accelerate personal and professional growth. For more information about becoming a member, visit improver.network today. All right, welcome back to the Improver Podcast. We're here talking history with Cooper Day. And so, Cooper, you were telling us some stories, and they're interesting to me because I love stories anyway, and also I love being inter- uh, educated about history, but I don't necessarily like sitting around reading a lot of history, so this is good for me. So uh, let's just kind of pick up the conversation. I think you had another one you wanted to share with us here. Yeah, thanks so much, Justin. So uh, let's say you're a business leader seeking to instill vision in your team. Um, you can talk to them about the example of someone I actually didn't know about until fairly recently. Uh, Mehmed the second of the Ottoman Empire. And actually, if you're a Netflix person, there is a really good uh, series done uh, about both the conquest of Constantinople and a accurate portrayal of Mehmed's um, relationship with Vlad Dracula gone sour. You know, there was actually, a, they do a really good dramatization of it, and then they actually intersperse it with professional historians talking about it. And um, someone was lamenting the fact that, um, I guess it was Bram Stoker who created the, uh, the modern image of, of Dracula, but Vlad Dracula was nothing like that. He was very bloodthirsty in the sense that he had no, he was called Vlad the Impaler. He would literally mm. impale people to death on sharp sticks. And he did that by the tens of thousands, but he didn't actually drink their blood. And, and what was the purpose again? Like, wh- why, did, why did he do that? So he did that as a form of psychological warfare. Uh, he was also a uh, he was a, he was a prince of a buffer state between two very large, powerful kingdoms, Hungary and then the Ottoman Empire. So he had to play like the shock factor role in order to kind of keep them both at bay. Man, that's that's wildness. Yeah. So anyway. Uh, the example of Mehmed II of, of the Ottoman Empire. So by a lot of people don't realize this, but uh, the Roman Empire, after they Rome fell to the barbarians in, I think it was 476, it continued on for mm, almost another thousand years in the form of the Eastern Roman Empire at Constantinople, which had been the dominant um, part of the empire for uh, by about 300 um, AD. So by the time of the late Middle Ages, which is about mm, 1440s, 1450s, the, uh, the Eastern Roman Empire was basically a shadow of its former self. It had lost all its former territory. Most of that had become at the expense of losing it to Islam. They weren't able to hold on to it. And they were basically shriveled to a city-state 
they were behind the walls of Constantinople. So geography favored them there, but they were surrounded, quite literally, by enemies. Um, and they had, unfortunately, become undisciplined and atrophied, and they just had this, this faith in, they were Christian, but they, they, had this, they had this faith in the strength of their city walls. Their city walls had never been breached. They were very famous throughout the ancient world. Um, and Mehmed said, you know what? I'm going to take that, and here's how I'm going to do it. He had a very large, well-organized, well-equipped, well-disciplined army of close to, some sources say, 200,000 men. Massive, massive army. So they marched, and they, and they conducted a siege. Well, the city's used to sieges, so they're like, eh, we're, look, you've got a really big army, but we're still not terribly impressed. But then Mehmed brought out his cannons. Well, cannons were still relatively ineffective, but he had some master gunsmiths that basically shaped these enormous cannons, and they're, they're still on display at the, uh, the historical museum uh, and museum. But basically, long and short, this technology allowed him to breach the walls, take the city, and then make that his capital. And for the next several hundred years, the phrase the Ottoman Empire, you know, would, would more or less um, cause the Christian Europe to have shivers down its collective spine mm. because you had this implacable enemy, which was strong and powerful. Now, eventually, the Ottoman Empire, like empires always do, it decayed. It wasn't able to keep up with the times. They had some reformers. Uh, there's a guy by the name. Uh, there's there's two uh, sultans in the late 19th century, uh, Mahmud and Abdul Masid. They are known as kind of like the Peter the Greats of the Ottoman Empire, and that they really tried to modernize. Um, but there were a lot of reactionary forces in their societies that pushed back against their reforms, and eventually. They were on the losing side of World War One, so they got dismembered. Wow. I, you know what? I'm kind of like all in the story now. But I feel like you opened up with saying something about business leaders, and now I'm trying to remember what the tie-in. Was there something for business or for leadership that you were pulling from? Yeah, that? so basically yeah. to instill vision in, in your team. You know, Mehmed had a vision, said, we can do this. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people said, no, you can't breach these walls of Constantinople. So many people have gone before you and tried and failed. Mm -hmm. And he said, no. We're going to do this. We have the confidence. We're going to and we're going to provide the ability. Wow, so that's a good lesson to pull out of that. And man, I could talk about vision a lot because again, that's more of my world. But I want to say here on this topic of history, yep. you mentioned your kiddos earlier. You know, so obviously you're in history. What is just something on a very simple level that if you're trying to teach them the importance of it, what what are you telling them? on kind of that, that bottom shelf uh, level as you're trying to instill the value of studying history? Like why? Uh, because just kind of zooming out of these specific stories for yep. a moment, just the principle. Why, why do you love these stories so much? Why do you continue to to dig in and learn more? Uh, what does it matter? I remember thinking that in school. Like, why do I need to know all this uh, stuff, right? And so, <laughs> so it's something that I've always been interested in. Um, I'm, I guess, I, I don't really have a, a better answer than that, other than I think that's just how God created me. <laughs> to, to it's just just how how he how he wired me. Um, it was my major in college. Uh, I haven't used it at all, at least officially in my professional life. But it's something that I draw, um, you know, um, wisdom and insight from. It, it's something that, for a number of years, I was almost kind of embarrassed, so to speak, about it. But no, I, I am I am proudly a history nerd. Yeah. <laughs> Un, unabashed, unafraid, no issues. So do you um, think this is something that, like, some people just should do, like art or music or whatever, but others shouldn't? Or are you like, no, man, everybody needs to. I think everybody you know, needs to. Everybody needs more and more history. Yes. And you should make it a discipline. And if so, why do you think it's yes. important yes. that it's not just a fun hobby to learn these stories, but it's actually healthy? Or, or I guess another way of saying it, here we are at the Improver Group, how does it improve people right. to be uh, students of history? Well, because uh, at the end of the day, there's so much collective wisdom in terms of the accumulation of recorded history. You know, we've got many, many thousands of years of human experiences. And, um, you know, as, as Ecclesiastes says, there's nothing new under the sun. And I believe that is absolutely true. Now, getting into, you know, my thematic reading with the subject of, of future shock, I've got like 
eight to ten different books on artificial intelligence in, mm-hmm. in, in, in there. So, yes, you could argue that, okay, there are some new things that are out there. Uh, you know, we may potentially be upended by Skynet. Hopefully not. <laughs> you know, but um, at the end of the day, there's not a whole lot that, that is changing besides the, you know, the, the cast and the characters and the costumes. You know, you, know but, you mentioned AI, and I think this is a good example of what we're talking about here because I was having a discussion the other day with some believers about AI, and understandably they're um, real hesitant about it, and their their radar is up, and they see that there are a lot of things wrong with it, and I, wrong in the moral sense of the word that, like, man, this may bring up bring in some evils into our world, or it's intimidating or frightening to them, and and I under, understand that, but again, we were saying, well, how does knowing history help us improve today? Well my studies of history show me that, yeah, when electricity came out, when the TV came out, when radio, when the internet uh, came out, these things, people always get intimidated uh, by it. And they're always thinking that, oh, this is really the end of the world. I mean, there are people who felt that about TV being in the home. So knowing that like they felt like that and then seeing has TV brought in evil into the world in a lot of ways it has through certain games, through certain TV and culture change, the TV has been horrible for society, but TV has also been very good for society and it's been a net good. And so my study of history says, hey, things like TV and the internet are used for good and for bad. And I think AI kind of falls into that same category. Like it's going to be used for bad. Your your fears are right in that sense. But what do you do? Do you bury your head in the sand and not do? And so I think by knowing history, it preps us for uh, the future. And that's probably one of the reasons you love to study this because you're like, man, Knowing the context and what's already happened helps me to take on these "quote unquote" new things that really aren't new. Right, <laughs> these absolutely. seasons keep coming. So, yeah, I mean, I, I couldn't agree more. Um, at the end of the day, disruption is going to happen, whether we like it or not. And as you said, um, there have been countless, whether it's technological, whether it's social, whether it is cultural. There's there's huge disruptive changes that are that are going to happen. I mean. Yes, for a long time, most people didn't travel outside of roughly a 30-mile radius of where they were born. That was their, mm-hmm. the extent of their known world. Obviously, things such as electricity, radio, television, the Internet, that's what really changed it. I mean, there's this uh, famous book by Thomas Friedman, a New York Times reporter, called The World is Flat. And basically, the 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 long story short on that one is that Technology has leveled the playing field on a lot of things and the time and distance usually required and maybe even in many cases social status required to get to get access to certain ideas or for certain things to 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 travel across that that's been flattened out. Yeah, you know, I did a YouTube video and podcast not too long ago and I had a premise in and I'm wondering this seems to tie in with your idea of studying history and reading books in general, but the premise of the my argument was this, uh, fill in this blank here. Uh, blank is the greatest teacher. What do, what do people usually say? History. What, well, or experience is what I yeah. always hear. is like yeah. experience or history is the greatest teacher. And like, okay, in a sense, I get where people say your, your experiences, your past experiences are the greatest teacher. But I also think it's really not just experiencing something. It's evaluating the experience of it because people experience stuff all the time right. and they don't grow from it. There's tons right. of people who make the same mistakes over and over. They, you know, they go through experience and they don't learn from it. It's really reflecting back on what happened and evaluating it and thinking about it in terms of that's the greatest teacher. Now, why am I bringing that up in relation to this conversation? Because to me, that's when you read history books and you read it you're actually getting the benefit of an experience without having to experience it yourself because it's the evaluation of it, not the experience itself. So you can get like, man, this is what it was like to sail across the ocean or this is what it had been like to live in a tribe or this would have been like to explore new lands. And you're not actually doing it. You don't get the full detail of all of that. But in a lot of ways, the benefit of that, you can still pull the 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 results of it, their perspective on it, and you can use that in your own life. And so, I don't know, does that make sense to you or how do you feel about that? No, a- a- absolutely. I mean, you were asking before, you know, how do I tie this in with my children? And a lot of it um, is is 
looking at, um, you know, we'll read the Jesus Storybook Bible to them very frequently, and we'll talk about, um, you know, examples of, you know, what it was like for uh, people in Israel at a certain time and why they were, um, you know, falling out of God's favor and what was the co- what, what the consequence of that was, and we can tie that to to real historical, real world um, examples, and show why it is you know we should seek to to be obedient to God's will and to do what what He has asked us to do. Yeah, man, it's good stuff. Well, um, we're going to be wrapping up here in a few minutes, but I want to hear something, and this is putting you on the spot a little bit. But when you think back on some of the stories, like maybe there's a favorite story in history that you're like, oh, I love telling this one, or this is a funny one, or one that just has been impactful, you know, for you. I know for me, one of the ones I share, you know, all the time is I love the Charles Blondin story of him tightrope walking in between skyscrapers, and he would get a cast iron skillet and cook a omelet on the tightrope. And it's just the stories of him doing that were fascinating. And then, you know, one time he uh, puts a tightrope across Niagara Falls, and he gets a wheelbarrow, and he says to the crowd that's watching, he says, who believes I can push someone across Niagara Falls in this wheelbarrow? And everybody claps and says, Charles, you're the best. We know you can do it. He says, great. Can I have a volunteer? And everybody looks around, and nobody's willing to volunteer. And I love that story because in the context of history, I believe this was early 1900s when he was doing this, it's, it is a neat story, it's a neat image, but that's such a powerful point because it really highlights the difference between a simple belief and a true faith because a simple belief is, man, I believe you can do it. You're the best. I know you could push someone across, but that's not a real faith because a real faith says, I believe it so much, I'll volunteer to get in the wheelbarrow. And I think, you know, from my, from my Christian worldview, a lot of people have a simple belief when it comes to God. It's like, oh, I believe, but they're not really believing. And so I love historical stories that are, to me, that one's kind of funny and inspirational, but do you have one that just sticks out to you as interesting, but has a good application? Like what comes to mind? I know it's a broad question for somebody who has a bunch. I've only got like two, so, (laughs) you know, but, but what's something that comes to mind? Um, So something that came to mind where you're asking that question and actually ties in with a a recent um, excursion. So, we were blessed to be part of a group um, from our church, Northside Baptist, that uh, partnered with First Baptist Amarillo and went up to a, uh, a church plant um, up in Colorado Springs, Mountain View Bible, um, that has been around for a little over a year. Um, and they're getting their, their sea legs underneath them, starting to get some momentum. But um, we had the, the blessedness of coming up and, you know, serving and, and um, doing, you know, lots of construction projects. I, I learned how to build a shed from scratch, which is, which is pretty cool. Um, you know, the, it was really neat to, to see the kids, uh, you know, serve alongside us and just to, to have that whole experience. Um, but something that I learned, and I, I try to fashion myself as kind of a, a Texas history buff, since that's kind of one of my subspecialties and something I've studied on for a long time. But Something that I just learned driving up through uh, on the the thirteen hour drive to Colorado Springs, driving up through the Texas Panhandle, we came across the XIT Ranch. Well, the XIT stands for ten in Texas, ten counties. Mm. It's a massive ranch, and at its peak, it um, had I think close to two hundred thousand head of cattle wow. that that were on it. But the story of it was really neat. Um, it was two brothers from Chicago that had gotten very wealthy in business and had saw the opportunity, um, of the fledgling Texas government and, and, um, the, the leaders of the state during that time were land rich, but, but cash poor. So these brothers basically said, we'll give you the money to pay for your state capital building. And in return, we want land. And they said, okay, we, we can do that. So they gave them many tens of thousands. I, 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 for, I forget the size, but it was an enormous amount of land that these men received in return um, to graze Catalan and to, to multiply um, their riches. And 
they they took a chance, and as a result of taking a chance and and, and uh, investing the money, uh, their gamble obviously paid off handsomely. You know, they they've done hmm. very well. Generations of their families have done very well. We have an awesome state capitol building in Austin as yeah. a result, and you know, just think of all this all the stability and prosperity uh, that has come, you know, as a result of of that building. So it, it so many people's lives have been impacted throughout you know the decades and centuries since because two brothers from Chicago were willing to take a, a risk on you know a, a, what was then a, a fledgling newly independent country. Man. Man, learn something new every day. Love it. That's so good. You know, it is funny because it kind of opened up by, hey, this isn't going to be the typical uh, entrepreneur leadership podcast, but really a couple of your big points have dealt with vision and risk. I don't know what more is relevant to leading and business than uh, taking chances and having big vision and uh, trying to learn from others to accomplish that. Man, that's what we do here. Uh, anything else you want to say or or share before we kind of wrap up here? You got any other thoughts or or you have a quote about reading or history, anything that you just really love, uh, you know, and I'm kind of putting you on the spot with that one, but anything come to mind there? Um, I mean, not really any quotes per se, just, you know, plugs for some, some, some big uh, historical kind of David and Goliath type of, um, you know, things. Obviously the, the famous David and Goliath story, almost everybody knows that if they don't, I feel sorry for them because <laughs> yeah. Everyone should know that one. Uh, you know, there's the uh, for Frank, either if they're a fans of, of the comic book artist uh, Frank Miller, uh, or the the movie that came out, uh, I think in the mid aughts, it was the Battle of Thermopylae with a famous 300 Spartans facing off against tens of thousands uh, of enemy troops. You know, there's the Battle of Bannockburn that's made famous and. Uh, Mel Gibson's Braveheart. I like the the yeah. portrait that you have there uh, yeah. <laughs> in your office. But you know those those are really big inspirational moments um, for me. Uh, I, f- I feel like nowadays, especially like for folks who live on the island of Taiwan, who are constantly being it seems like menaced by the Chinese. Um, there's big examples of um, you know Czechs in the Sudet land in the late 1930s that were being menaced by Hitler. Um, so the, those those types of situations. Um, uh, book recommendations. Uh, I've actually got a couple. Uh, March of Folly by Barbara Tuckman. Okay. Um, and uh, general topic on that one, just because I can't figure yeah, out by the uh, headline, yeah. just the general. Yeah. So general topic on that one's basically examples of 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 uh, of nations or people uh, acting contrary to their own self interest when feasible alternatives are available. Uh. So uh, talking about, um, you know, the British uh, losing America, she, her, her premise is that didn't have to happen. And right. let me tell you why. Yeah. Uh, the Renaissance popes and their, their, their decadence provoking the Protestant succession, you know, Luther's uh, you know, nailing of the, the 95 theses on the yeah. cathedral uh, at, uh, at uh, Württemberg, I think it was, um, you know, America's involvement in Vietnam. Obviously, um, no no shade or, or any disrespect to the to the men and women who, who took part in, in, in that conflict. Um, but it was one where I think we came to realize as a country, hey, maybe we we let that one drag on for a little too mm. long kind of thing. Yeah. Man, that's a hey, crazy question here. I don't know yeah. why I just thought a bit about this, but I, I could, could look it up. But Cortez's story about burning the boats, that's a made-up story, right? No, that's know? real. That's a real story. That's a okay, real I to, story. Because I had said it to somebody, they're like, yeah, we think that's just a that's a fable, it's a story. No. Like, he really did do the whole burn the boats yes. uh, thing on that, there. Okay. So so he was actually, there. there's actually, uh, that has happened several times throughout history. That happened okay. um, famously. Um, so tell the story, because I think probably everybody's heard it, but just in case, like, go ahead and just give the premise on it. Or I'll tell you what my premise is. Maybe sure. I've got misunderstand it. But the basic way I remember the story is, is Cortez was getting ready to invade Mexico. And as he was going to land, they didn't have enough supplies to retreat, but yet they were going to face opposition on land. And they wasn't certain if they could win against the opposition, but they really couldn't turn and go back. And he didn't want people to get afraid and try to go back. So he said, when we land, we're going to burn the boats. In other words, it's all in. There's no backup plan. We're charging full. So the lesson I always thought of that was don't have the backup plan. Just just go, go all in. And then, you know, 
leave it all on the field, so to speak. So that's kind of the basic idea I've got. But did I misremember the story a little bit? No, I mean, so there, there's, there's a couple of things, like the fact that uh, I, I think, like, his brother-in-law was governor of Cuba, and they had a falling out, and he knew, like, if he came back unsuccessful, his brother-in-law was going to have his head uh, kind of thing. So he had he had his own <laughs> personal okay. motives there. Um but something that a lot of people don't realize is if it weren't for those proxy Indian allies of Cortez, he only had like 150 guys and he had some some weapons and some cannons and some horses, um, which they would have shocked and awed the the uh, the Aztecs um, initially, but that would have worn off as the argument. And really, it was— Because how many of them were there? How many Aztecs are we talking about? Uh, there were hundreds of thousands. Oh, wow. Yeah, Jeez. yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So so when it, what ended up happening is the Aztecs had had been so brutal and, and bloodthirsty with their th- foreign policy, they had created so many enemies that when Cortez showed up and started feeling out, hey, is there anyone else that's willing to join us? Why, yes, we don't know you, but we hate those people who have been enslaving us and, you know, destroying our our cultures and livelihoods and everything. So they had thousands upon thousands of allies who did the the heavy lifting. Man, I always wonder that. I'm glad. I'm, so I'm glad I didn't look it up because hearing you explain it was much better. <laughs> <laughs> Man, well, I tell you what, I'm like, I don't know, you talk about risk, you talk about vision, you talk about learning from others, about charging forward, about doing big things. You, you talk about these people in history that accomplished great feats when the odds were against them and going full blast like – yeah, man, I'm ready. This was a good. Uh, this was a good leadership uh, growth improvement. I mean, uh, yeah, love the conversation, man. Thanks a ton for being here with us today. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it, man. All right, improvers, we'll have some of these books referenced in the show notes, but we look forward to connecting with you on the next podcast. Until then, stay good and keep getting better. Thank you for listening to this production of the Improver Network podcast. Be sure to subscribe so you can catch future episodes. For more information about the Improver Network, visit us online at improver.network. That's www.improver.network. And connect with us on social. Until next time, keep getting better.